The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Tuesday, October 10th. I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. In tonight's news, a rally calls for an end to a lockdown at a Wisconsin prison. The first sailors celebrate a longtime member as the sailing season comes to an end. Kids riding the bus to and from school in Madison continue to experience delays. And in the second half, UW-Madison students taught campus diversity and we learn about invasive birds. All these stories and more on tonight's news. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A conservative former Wisconsin Supreme Court justice says lawmakers shouldn't try to impeach a current liberal justice as part of a political dispute over redistricting, a newly released email shows. Some Republicans in the state legislature floated the idea of impeaching Justice Janet Protasiewicz if she didn't recuse herself from lawsuits seeking to toss Republican-drawn voting maps. Protasiewicz criticized the maps during her recent campaign, which Republicans say, say make her biased. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss gathered a committee of former justices to review the prospect of impeachment. One of those former justices, David Prosser, wrote an email to Voss late last week throwing cold water on the idea, the Associated Press reports. The email was released as part of an open records request. In it, Prosser said state law indicates impeachment is reserved for crimes and corruption in office. The same day that Prosser sent the email, Protosewitz officially declined to recuse herself as the 4-3 liberal majority on the high court voted to hear one redistricting case. Operators of a Wisconsin mill where a corn dust explosion killed five workers will pay more than $11 million in a federal settlement, reports the Associated Press. Didion Milling Inc. agreed late last month to plead guilty to charges that managers and employees at the Cambria plant falsified safety records related to combustible corn dust in the years leading up to the 2017 blast. The company will pay a $1 million fine and $10.25 million to the estates of the workers who were killed. It also faces five years of probation with extra scrutiny from safety inspectors. Three Didion officials are facing separate charges as individuals. The number of Wisconsin babies born with syphilis is on the rise, leading health officials to call for more testing of sexually transmitted infections among pregnant patients. Congenital syphilis occurs when the infection is passed from a pregnant parent to their unborn child. According to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, cases of congenital syphilis reported in Wisconsin Department of Health Services data rose from 16 to 29 between 2021 and 2022. In the previous decade, the state saw an average of zero to two cases per year. Health officials say the bacterial infection can have a severe impact on baby's development, but it can be effectively treated with antibiotics if parents are tested early in a pregnancy. The University of Wisconsin system is rebranding. In 2024, the administrative umbrella for the state's 13 UW schools will go, go by the name the Universities of Wisconsin. This change was announced today in a press release from UW System President Jay Rothman. He said the brand, quote, shifts the focus, unquote, from the system to individual universities. However, the UW System will remain the legal name as defined in state statutes. Along with the new brand comes a new logo and design identity. The press release did not mention how much the overhaul would cost, or if the shorthand for the new name would be Use W's. The fate of a long-promised Madison public market will likely be decided by members of the city council next week. That's when alders will vote whether to borrow an extra $2.3 million to cover higher-than-expected construction bids. 
The city's finance committee nixed an alternate plan this week to trim construction costs by removing some parts of the design. That leaves it up to the full council to decide whether to take out the additional loan or scrap the project. The Madison Public Market, which is slated to replace a city garage on the Near East Side with a community space for local vendors, has faced a tumultuous path over the years. Most recently, in September, the lowest construction bid for the project came in at more than $1 million over a planned $24.2 million budget. And now on to today's top stories. Wapan Correctional Institution, a maximum security prison in southeast Wisconsin, has been on lockdown since late March. Incarcerated people's families and friends gathered outside the Wisconsin State Capitol today alongside prison reform advocates, saying action by Governor Tony Evers is long overdue. They're demanding the lockdown end and that corrections facilities across the state go through mandated improvements. WORT News producer Faye Parks has the story. State data on Wapan showed that more than half of the 284 full-time positions for correctional officers are unfilled. The Department of Corrections says that it's simply not safe to function as usual and pointed to a few violent incidents as the trigger for the lockdown. But today, on the steps of the Capitol building, advocates said lockdowns are ineffective. Talib Akbar shared a letter from an inmate at Wapan that reads, The lockdown is making the violence worse. Can you imagine that? Ann Fleming is a volunteer with Wisdom, a statewide advocacy network. She has been corresponding with incarcerated folks and shared some of their experiences today. We are being offered only one opportunity for recreation weekly, not two, as the Department of Corrections has sometimes stated. We're given one shower weekly, despite the state requirement for two. Wapun's Northwest Cell Hall has rats, bats, and birds living with the inmates. How can this be healthy? We're being fed one hot meal a day. No crisis intervention or clinical staff make regular weekly rounds to check on inmates on their emotional, mental, or psychological health. The only time crisis or clinical workers are seen is after someone has attempted or committed suicide. And Molly Hayden shared her son's story since his incarceration at Dodge Correctional Institution. He was diagnosed with stage 2 colon cancer after prison doctors ignored his medical complaints for weeks. Dodge eventually discovered and started to treat his cancer, but their family's relief was short-lived. If only we knew he would be transferred to Columbia Correctional Institutional two months later, where all his medical, mis- or medical information was lost. My son has faced severe medical mistreatment vindictive retaliatory actions by correctional officers and medical staff that were reported for their negligence of procedure, he is still being denied a proper diagnosis for his cancer and has received no treatment for any of his continuing chest, leg pain, bleeding, dizziness, nausea, and fainting. The speakers today argued that improving living conditions in state correctional facilities is just one small step to address a system-wide issue. Eugene Nelson is part of Milwaukee's Project Return which helps formerly incarcerated people re-enter civilian life. Nelson shared his own experience with the justice system, pointing out that crimeless revocation unnecessarily overcrowds prisons. He was nearly incarcerated, again, for cutting hair. That's a crimeless revocation, and keep in mind that I received my state certification, my license in barbering and cosmetology at the Green Bay Correctional Institution. He went on to share a number of demands for change moving forward. 
We're calling on Governor Evers to provide an executive order for this mandate, which is limited periods of modified movement to no longer than two weeks. Provide all DOC residents with at least three showers per week. Allow DOC residents at least one hour out of their cells daily for recreation activities. To provide all DOC residents with opportunities for video or preferably in-person visitation. And to allow all DOC residents at least two telephone calls per week separate from their hour out of the cell time. Their demands also include an end to the lockdowns, a reduced jail population, and reinvesting taxpayer funds into community-based alternatives. Several of today's speakers pointed out that Governor Tony Evers made campaign promises to reform the prison system before he was elected. In a 2018 debate, he said he wanted to cut Wisconsin's prison population in half. Now, advocates are saying that the follow-through is long overdue. They made appointments to speak with state lawmakers this afternoon and mobilized the folks in attendance, asking them to sit down with their representatives to discuss prison reform in the hopes that change will finally be realized. James Morgan of Moses, a criminal legal reform organization, said, It is going to take every single one of us to get in touch with someone that we know, who knows someone else who knows someone, and let them know that this is not the last time we will be here. I want them so upset and discomforted in that building that they'll be coming out here every day trying to explain <laughs> why what needs to be done hasn't been done. We'll have more reporting later in the show on Wisconsin's prison system from the New York Times and Wisconsin Watch. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Joe Silverberg has been sailing on Lake Mendota for longer than most people have been alive. He started when he was 13. He's now 93. He's a member of the Hoover's Sailing Club and is most fond of their starter dinghies called Tex. This summer, Joe donated money to have some of the Tex restored. He only asked to name one of the refurbished boats and be the first one to sail it. This past Sunday, WORT reporter Jess Miller met up with Joe and some other members of the Hoofers to celebrate the maiden voyage of the Joji 7. If you've ever spotted on Lake Mendota a yellow and orange boat with a little sail and one or two people in it, you've seen what's called a tech dinghy. These sailboats are typically used for training and have been around in one form or another since the 1930s. This summer, the Hoofers Sailing Club were able to restore a few of their techs to their former glory, new paints, new rigging, Thanks in parts to the generosity of Joe Silverberg. Joe donated money to Hoofers for the Tex on a couple conditions, that he could name the boats and be the first one to sail it. This past Sunday, Joe got his wish, and the Joe G7 set sail with Joe at the helm. Joe is 93 and has lived in Madison most of his life. My parents brought me here when I was Joe. three years old. Is there any water in your boat? No. It's not leaking, I hope. Yeah. Not a drop. How about that? So far. Yeah, hey, hey, hey. He's been sailing since he was 13, 80 years. For much of that time, he's been an active member of the Hoofer Sailing Club. He started there in 1947, and though he took a break in the middle to raise a family and run a temp agency in Madison, he returned in the 1990s as an instructor. So Joe, you probably don't remember this, but I do. Dan Patterson manages the Hoofer's fleet of techs. He did most of the restoration work himself, but remembers being in Joe's introductory sailing class called Ground School. So when I had 
my ground school. I had it with my daughter. Yeah. And we're sitting there waiting. And all of a sudden, this, this older gentleman walks in, kind of slow. Now, what do, you mean, what do you mean, kind of slow? Well, you know, not as fast as like a 20-year-old, right? And then I said, is this, is this old guy going to learn how to sail? And what well, turns out, Joe was the instructor. Now, <laughs> I asked Joe a question during the... Uh, I can still move faster than I know. most people. I, I asked a question to Joe. I said, how do you get on those big keel boats? Because that's really what I'd like to sail. And Joe, he said this to me. He goes, look, anybody can learn how to sail one of those things. You spend a summer sailing a tack, and you're really <laughs> going to learn how to sail. Which is true. And that's why I've had kind of a, you know, a little, the big something boats, close to me, the tacks. Right. Yeah. Boats, the big boats actually sail themselves. Right. In fact, it seemed that just about everyone we saw on the dock had had Joe as a teacher for ground school. But in all that time, Joe says, not much has changed about the Hofer Sailing Club. This last year has gotten raunchier. I asked Joe what kept him coming back to sailing after all these years. The wind. <laughs> so, so where does the name Joe G come from? That comes from I am Joe and my wife of 68 years was Jean. And all of our boats, after we got married, we named Joji. And this is the seventh one? This is the seventh one. Though Sunday's light breeze wasn't ideal for sailing, an experienced sailor Joe took a paddle just in case. He managed to make it out past Picnic Point and make it back in one piece. Good, coming down. How was it, Joe? Wonderful. We had a gust for a while. Nice. <laughs> Did you have to use the paddle or no? No, we didn't use the paddle. And it still looks pretty dry in there. This boat does not leak a drop. Awesome. How long do you think she'll last before she needs to be renovated again? Well, let's see. What has this been? This has been 70-some years. So... <laughs> so at least that long, hopefully. <laughs> Probably that long. <laughs> And to anyone interested in taking the Joji or any other sailboat out on Lake Mendota, Joe had this to say. Well, if you live in Madison and you don't take advantage of uh, Mendota and the Hofer Sailing Club, you are, in my humble opinion, N-U-T-Z. For WORT News, I'm Jess Miller. After switching to a new independent busing contractor, first student this year, the Madison Metropolitan School District also instituted new start times for Madison Middle School students. Since early September, the district has been in the spotlight for delayed pickups and a bus driver shortage. Scott Gerard has consistently reported on these issues for the Cap Times, and he shared some insight with WORT News producer Faye Parks earlier this afternoon. Thank you for joining me, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. So earlier today, you published an update on the district's busing issues. What are the main problems they're dealing with right now? It's been a little over a month into the school year, and and the problems are pretty similar to what they were early on. Buses have been late picking students up in the morning, late picking students up at the end of the day from school. Uh, There were some situations early in the year where buses just didn't show up at all on routes that were planned. 
there was one instance of a student being dropped off at the wrong stop, and that caused, understandably, some chaos for that family. You think about what a bus being late means in the morning, and that means, you know, kids, elementary schoolers and middle schoolers standing on the sidewalk somewhere waiting for a bus that they're not sure when it's coming for anywhere from, you know, some have been 15, 20 minutes late, some have been up to an hour late. And the notification to families has, from what I understand, gotten a little better as the year has gone on. So at least they can know ahead of time. But the problems that causes for, for parents getting to work, staying home longer to sit with their child until the bus comes. I think district officials and bus company officials are pretty aware the problem's only going to get more serious as the weather begins to turn like we're seeing this week. Once we hit daylight savings and the clocks change in, in about a month, there's definitely some energy around getting those fixed. But those are the main problems is just the late buses and the uncertainty around it for families. And so, as you mentioned, this was an issue that started out at the beginning of the school year. Has it improved at all, or has it been pretty consistent week to week? It probably depends on who you ask for families. I think for some routes, there's there's improvement. And in, in the, the bus company is quick to note that they are what they consider on time, which means within 10 minutes either way of what's scheduled for about 90% of the routes. So, you know, that's from a statistical standpoint, that that sounds pretty good. But then you think about what that means for those 10% of the routes and, and the families on those. So things have gotten better, probably, though there was a couple weeks where that rate was as high as 93, 94%, I believe, and, and it sort of went back down to 90% last week. So, well, there's maybe been some improvement, not on the systematic level, I would say. And, and a lot of that comes down to the bus driver shortage, which is sort of the culprit behind these problems. What exactly is causing the driver shortage nationwide? I, I think there's a lot of different answers. One major one is that, uh, you know, if you have a CDL, there's a lot of other jobs you can do with that commercial driver's license that you can probably make more money or have more regular hours. So bus driving, school bus driving is a part-time position. First student has talked about that it has some opportunities for folks to fill the extra time to make the job full-time, but other jobs with a CDL, you're just doing the same thing the whole time and some folks like that. So I think there's, there's probably a, a pay issue in what you can do with the licensure that's required. There's the timing. And then a lot of school bus drivers pre-pandemic were retirees. Folks passed their first career, their main career perhaps, wanted to make a little money and make a difference in the community. And a lot of those people retired or left the job during the pandemic for very understandable reasons and haven't come back. And so there's also a demographic change that I think the industry as a whole is still adjusting to and figuring out how to recruit a different demographic than what they had before. As you've reported on this topic, have you heard from any students or parents affected? Throughout the past month, I've, I've heard from a few different parents, as I mentioned, a student getting dropped at the wrong stop, and, and that was pretty shocking for that parent and his 10-year-old son. It turned out the child had been dropped maybe three or four blocks away from where he was supposed to be dropped, but in a very unrecognizable place to him. And so he ended up having to ask a stranger who he saw walking her dog for a ride to a park that was near his house, and, and this father detailed to me, you know, what it was like. He was standing at the bus stop where his son was supposed to get dropped off and suddenly saw his son in the passenger seat of a stranger's car driving by and what that shock was like for him and what that experience was for his son was just really 
traumatizing and cause a lot of, I think, distrust. Uh, you know, for families who are experiencing this more than a month into the school year, I think it is hard to, to trust that the problem's going to get better. In the last couple of months, how has MMSD and FIRST student attempted to address the issues of shortages and, and late arrival times? It's been difficult to see from the outside at times how they were trying to address it initially. Last night, I think they talked a bit more about some quote-unquote creative solutions outside of the box. First student has just repeatedly said the driver shortage is the problem and it's not going to solve itself. Part of the problem there is the training process to get someone licensed for a commercial driver's license and a school bus uh, certification takes time. So even if they attract a bunch of applicants, it's going to take a while to get those folks on the road driving the buses. First student has been sending out some of its office employees to drive who are licensed. The district has seen at times some of its staff who have CDLs driving to make sure students can get to where they need to go. But last night they talked a bit more in detail about exploring a potential partnership with Madison Metro for middle school students. So the the details and how much more efficient that could make things still unknown. They talked about creating incentives for more school staff to get their CDL and drive buses. They did talk about the possibility of changing start and end times. The interim superintendent acknowledged that they've thought about it, but she really stressed that they had not made a decision to do that yet or anything, but they are exploring it because they feel that they have to explore everything at this point. So she acknowledged some pretty significant challenges that would come with such a change. So there haven't been any, well, this is the way to fix it. Uh, they, they've been trying to hire and, and advertising for positions and and just sort of doing their best to to fill the roles where they can. Another problem I know they've talked about is that when folks call out sick, right, people get sick, can't come to work, family members sick, a child sick, things like that. You know, these bus drivers are, are people too. And when that happens, they don't know until the morning of, and so then they're scrambling to figure out which routes they have to cover or which ones will be late, and then communicating that to families. So there's just sort of a lot of process things that come into it as well that make the communication and the problem solving pretty difficult. From your perspective, did MMSD potentially roll out the new start times too soon or without properly preparing? And would you anticipate them going back to the old times in the future? A quote from one of the school board members last night, she talked about how she still feels justified in the decision to make the change to two tiers because it was based on, you know, a decade of research and discussion and conversation. And she just said it is pretty hard to see the district struggle to execute in the moment where they're actually making the the change. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't touched on yet? You know, folks should keep in mind that this problem means students are missing class, means students who have a, an individualized education plan are missing some of their legally required services. So it's, it's a significant problem that is really challenging for a lot of families and a lot of, a lot of students. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Scott. Absolutely. Thank you for making the time to talk about school issues. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us.
On last Friday's 8 o'clock buzz, host Andy Moore spoke to Jim Malowitz, the deputy managing editor at Wisconsin Watch. He worked closely with reporter Mario Curran on his story following the ongoing crisis at the Waupon Correctional Institution. Welcome to the program, Jim. Thanks for having me, Andy. Yes, um, thank you for being here. And Jason Joyce is, is with me too, the publisher of Isthmus. So if you hear him pipe in with a question, you'll know that I'm not a ventriloquist. Um, uh, this is basically a story about a, a major lockdown at the prison. What generally triggers a lockdown at a prison like Wapan? So this is a, uh, one of the really interesting things that, that we've been looking at is that there's very little information about lockdowns and about what is supposed to trigger lockdowns. So in this case, in, in the Department of Corrections has even said how often they have lockdown prison, prisons in the last years. We've asked for that data and, they, and we're, we're told that it's not available. But in this case, the um, Department of Corrections is saying that unspecified threats have triggered this lockdown. They've mentioned um, a few violent incidents that have been scattered across uh, recent months that have caused this. They're saying that the lockdown has been triggered for the safety of the inmates and the guards. But this is really kind of one of those areas where there's not a lot of information about how this type of thing is is normally handled. But um, in general, general, it's a safety issue. Is lockdown an institutional word? Is that an actual correctional term? So the Department of Corrections publicly is calling this modified movement. That's their their bureaucratic term. Huh. Internally, um, e- even in some like you know, internal documents that we've gotten, Department of Corrections staff and the prisoners um, calls it lockdown colloquially. But but the technical term is is modified movement that's being shared publicly. You see again uh, the, the the approximate number of inmates who were affected, and what are they saying about how this summer has gone? Sure. So Wapan houses about a thousand prisoners, um, and actually, the um, this is the oldest prison uh, in the state, and it was actually only built for, I believe, it's 800 or 900 prisoners. So, so it's, it's over capacity, like some other prisoners are in the state. Basically, just we're he- we're hearing, you know, all sorts of uh, effects, both physically and mentally. Again, prisoners are, are telling Mario that they're not getting medical care, psychological care, and and also being locked in, you know, one small area for for hours upon hours a day with without getting exercise or or even showers. That can take a mental toll um, as well. And there's also, you know, research that is has shown that lockdowns, say, during COVID, which, you know, lockdowns happen for very different reasons during COVID to, to limit the spread of disease, that that really had psychological effects of, of prisoners. So now we're having uh, these lockdowns um, continue for, for other reasons. And from what we're hearing, you know, we, we are not physically inside the prison ourselves, but we are hearing that the conditions are deteriorating. Jim, it's Jason Joyce here. Um, we've heard that staffing has been an issue with the corrections department for many years, and I know that they've been running commercials on TV uh, this over the summer trying to recruit folks. Do we know where the current staffing is at this particular prison or even across the corrections department? Right. That's a, that's a great question. Um, so in uh, Wapan, the staffing, there's about a 50% vacancy, and I believe that's the largest vacancy in the prison system. So basically half the jobs that are supposed to be there are, are unfilled. So that's one of the things that, although the Department of Corrections has not come out and said that, that staffing is the reason for this lockdown or, or what they're calling the, the modified movement, former wardens, uh, Department of Corrections um, staff members that Mario has talking to, and the, the prisoners themselves and advocates are, a lot of them are pointing to, to staffing and saying that they think that this lockdown is caused by a lack of staff. And, you know, when you lock down a prison and limit movement, it's easier to control those populations, um, at least in, in the immediate term. 
Jim, you mentioned very, very briefly what the Wisconsin Department of Corrections is saying, and maybe it was briefly because it sounds like they're not saying much, but please help us understand a little bit about what the state's position is on this a little bit more deeply. It's been challenging to get um, a lot of information, but one of the quotes from a, a public affairs official with the Department of Corrections says that there, there are multiple threats of disruption and assaultive behavior towards staff and other persons in our care. Um, and they're saying that there's not one specific incident that prompted uh, the facility to, to go under this modified movement, but they're, they're sharing sort of these vague details of what prompted this. And Mario has asked uh, many, many times, what's the plan for resuming normal activities? Does it have to do with staffing? Does it have to do with something else? And the Department of Corrections just hasn't answered that question. So it's been under lockdown since March, and we still don't know what the plan is for resuming normal activities or, or if there is a plan. There definitely is a concerted effort to fill staff positions. Again, the, the Department of Corrections um, official statement is that um, this is for reasons other than staff. Um, that said, they, they acknowledge that there, there are staff shortages in general. And the legislature did recently approve a pay raise for guards. And I believe that boosts them uh, to about $33 per hour from around $21. Uh, that's something that, that will take time um, if it does work to recruit more folks to, to, to staff um, this prison and others that you know are understaffed. Um, but that is one action that's been taken that, that could have an effect. That said, I mean, it's you know, pay raises are great, but, you know, there's still the question of who wants to sign up to do these very, very difficult jobs because serving in a prison is, is not easy. So, so the Department of Corrections is undergoing this, this major um, recruiting effort. Jim, can you talk a little bit about how Mario is doing his work as a reporter to reach inmates? You, you mentioned he's spoken to several inmates during the course of this lockdown. How, how is he able to stay in touch with them and do his reporting? We started by trying to request a, a large data set of, of complaints from all prisons across the, the system uh, to see if there were any, um, you know, pressure points within the system. The Department of Corrections denied our request, so we weren't able to assemble that database. Um, but what Mario has found is to be pretty successful is he's reached out to, to some specific, uh, more prominent prison advocates who have kind of put the word out that he's interested in hearing what's going on um, within the system. Jim Melwitz, thanks for joining us on the Friday Buzz. Thanks so much for talking about this. You're so welcome. Thank you. Each Tuesday, we bring you the news from the UW-Madison campus, produced by reporters at the Daily Cardinal, one of the campus newspapers. This week, Cardinal Call co-producer Hewan Lim and Daily Cardinal staff writer Ella Hanley discussed UW-Madison's record-breaking enrollment and what this means for diversity initiatives. Hello, and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm your co-host, Gavin Escott. And I'm your co-host, Hewan Lim, joined today by staff writer Ella Hanley. Ella, you covered a story on campus enrollment here at UW-Madison last Tuesday. Tell me a little bit about that. So the article basically talks about how the enrollment for UW-Madison this year broke 50,000 for the first time in the history of our campus. And the new freshman class also included one of the highest numbers of Wisconsin residents. Not the highest, but the second highest. 
Yeah, going off of that, you said that the new freshman class included the second highest number of Wisconsin residents at 3,813 students. The university has committed to enrolling a minimum of 3,600 Wisconsin residents each year. And in your article, you mentioned two programs that provide tuition assistance to Wisconsin residents, Bucky's Tuition Promise and Bucky's Pell Pathway. How might enrolling a greater number of Wisconsin residents affect UW's budget and in these initiatives to include people who might not have the means to pay for tuition? So what I sort of gathered in my research, and I think is some, that's something that's evident in just how UW-Madison conducts itself, is that it's really passionate about Wisconsin residents. And I think that the way that their funding works, especially with the new Bucky's Pell Pathway program, that they're going to be devoting a lot of their budget to ensuring that students can attend and can maximize all of the opportunities at school. And I kind of touched on this a little in the article, how the enrollment increase has been impacted by the, actually conversely, I want to say, the budget has been tightened a little bit by the state government. It was interesting to see that the enrollment number increased. I think that the fact that the university is investing so much in its students despite the government tightening budget, especially when it comes to diversity and inclusion programs, it's really interesting, but it's it's promising. It seems like officials have repeatedly committed to maintaining and progressing towards a diverse UW-Madison campus, despite, like you said, pressure to cut DEI funding. How do you think this commitment will be affected by the number of students we have on campus? That's what was kind of interesting when I was first doing the research for this was sort of wondering what that would look like. But I think that the campus, at least based on what the chancellor said at the convocation, that the decrease in the size of its freshman class this year specifically is probably pretty deliberate, especially considering the DEI programs that are being strengthened right now. I think that they sort of decreased the size of the class in order to really maximize the opportunities for incoming students and not make them feel like they're at a place where they're not fully welcomed. And, you know, everyone should have a space to learn and a space to work. And I think that it was promising to read that they reduced the size of the freshman class, but they are going to be using that funding for other things. And it seemed like the reason why Chancellor Mnuchin decided to decrease how many students were being admitted was in order to ensure that students had access to all of the opportunities on campus. And they also briefly mentioned other shortages in housing in the city. Do you think that there's more that the university could be doing to support students? I really did appreciate the fact that the freshman class was smaller just because I know that obviously there is a housing crisis going on and that's like kind of nerve wracking, especially being a student and it's increasingly difficult to get housing. I think the ways the university could better support students, I think that cutting the size of the freshman class is definitely a good start. I mean, like the chancellor said, it really does help to better distribute funding and, you know, really put funds towards other programs to make the environment a better place you know if there's tons and tons of students but they don't have the ability to really provide programs and other means of support then it's not really sustainable so I I really did appreciate that they they decreased the size. What kind of UW-Madison do you hope to see in the future? I have really appreciated all of the access to programs and other resources that the campus has. I think 
the housing crisis is definitely one that can be a little bit intimidating for incoming students, but to know that the university is actively working with students to make decisions that will better support everyone is promising and hopeful. And I I think I'd like to see just continuing the same sort of mindset of working to make sure that programs and opportunities are available for students to maximize. And do you have any thoughts before we wrap up for this week? I don't think so. I thank you so much for um, calling me to talk about this, though. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me this week and discussing enrollment sizes on campus. Um, It's been really great talking to you. Yeah, you too. In other campus news, advancements in kidney transplants prove optimistic in a new UW-Madison research study. Dr. Dixon Kaufman and his team at the University of Wisconsin-Madison are on a mission to revolutionize kidney transplant procedures. They seek to eliminate the need for lifelong medications in transplant recipients, a so-called holy grail in the field. By developing a new system of transplantation, their work aims to enable the recipient's immune system to accept donor organs with minimal or no anti-rejection medicines. With over 24,000 kidney transplants performed annually in the U.S., organ rejection remains a significant concern. Kaufman's team partnered with specialists from Stanford University to adapt a monkey model that tested compatibility between donor and recipient organs. After years of experimentation, they achieved remarkable success, making over four years of kidney transplant survival without anti-rejection medications a significant breakthrough. The project offers hope for more effective and straightforward transplantation procedures, with future potential for gene-edited pig organs to be used in transplants, providing a potential abundance of organs. Dr. Kaufman's research has the potential to make a significant impact on a national and global scale. In other news, Culver's has no plans for a State Street location, despite push from students. Despite strong student support and enthusiasm for a Culver's restaurant near the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus, the popular fast food chain has yet to establish a presence in the area. The lack of a Culver's is attributed to the absence of owner-operators expressing interest in a State Street location, according to a Culver's spokesperson. The company relies on independent owner-operators to choose their restaurant locations, even though students have been pushing for a nearby Culver's for some time. Recent efforts, including a satirical social media post and outreach by District 8 Alder MGR Govindarajan, have failed to secure a Culver's near the campus due to internal issues within the company. Students remain disappointed but hopeful that an owner-operator will eventually see the potential of bringing a taste of Midwest culture to State Street. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. On tonight's edition of Wildlife Weekly, Jackie Sandberg talks about invasive birds. Specifically, she considers whether they should be rehabilitated or if that's in conflict with conservation goals. Uh 
Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about invasive birds. And we have quite a few invasive birds that are in the United States, and I wanted to give a little bit of their background and history because it's a really interesting topic in the rehabilitation field about whether or not we should or shouldn't rehabilitate invasive animals. Animals that have been in the United States for a long time but didn't actually originate here, maybe they were from a different country, is it something that we want to promote or do we want to help in an effort coming from the conservation status of limiting the continuance of those species in areas? Or do we want to potentially say, hey, they've been here a long time. Let's just go ahead and rehabilitate and let them out. They would have been here anyways. It's a really hot button debate. And I think it comes down to, as rehabilitators, where you kind of see yourself on the philosophical spectrum of conservation of what do invasive species do to native species that are here? And do we want to promote their health or do we just want to kind of accept the world as it is now? knowing that humans have typically been the reason that invasive species have been introduced in certain areas and other parts of the world. So there's lots of reasons that we think about invasive species and wonder, should we rehabilitate them or not? You know, species that might be from Europe, for example, compared to North America, there's some pretty big bodies of water they'd have to cross to get here. So knowing that they might have come over because of people having them, bringing them on a ship or a plane or something, and then if they were to be established and thrive, then they're in a new home area. That's awesome for them. But then what if they outcompete all of the animals that were here previously? Is that kind of part of the natural life and ecosystem or the natural world? Or is that something where we say, hey, us as humans, we brought this on. Let's fix this problem. It's causing some issues. So it's really hard to say, and you will find that lots of rehabilitators in so many different areas of the world and the U.S. will tell you different. It is okay to have a different opinion about whether or not we should or shouldn't be rehabilitating invasive species. At the Humane Society here in Madison, we don't choose to rehabilitate invasive species on behalf of conservation efforts, but also time and resources and availability of our cage space and our resources to try to help those that need the help the most, which in our case are typically native species that are in population decline because they're being outcompeted by invasive species. So that's kind of our philosophy, not to say that those birds don't need help when they do. I have had so many people call the Wildlife Center because they found an injured starling or a house sparrow, for example, which are two invasive species very common that are admitted to our clinic. And they are severely injured, you know, a broken leg, they got hit by a car incurred pain and suffering, and we don't like to see that ever. It sucks. It, honestly, it's the hardest part about being a rehabilitator is seeing those injuries and sickness and seeing an animal in pain or have to suffer. By all means, we will help that person no matter what it is. You know, if it ends up being an invasive species, you know, we can refer to other rehabilitators in our area that might work with those species. And if we can get them there as quick as possible, that's going to be the best thing for that animal. Alternatively, if that animal was suffering so greatly that we're talking medical decline, maybe an emergency euthanasia situation, you know, we are here for that as well because we, we don't want to see that animal have to suffer in its last moments with someone being picked up by a person. And of course, they're scared of people. They're not the same as our domestic animals and pets in terms of how they like us. Probably terrified to have been hit by a car and then picked up by this alien human and are in pain the whole time. So those are the things that we think about and we still offer those services if needed in those extreme cases as well. 
Invasive species to the U.S., there are seven of the most common that I'm going to share. There's a really great blog about it by the American Bird Conservancy. Highly recommend reading it. But the first one is the European starling. And there was someone who really loved Shakespeare. And they released 60 European starlings into Central Park in New York in the 1890s. And so that is how they first got established. They are originally from Europe and some of Southwestern Asia and North Africa. And they are incredibly intelligent, beautiful birds but unfortunately do a lot of damage in North of America. The estimate is about $800 million in crop damage every year because they tend to evict other birds from their nests, but then also eat a whole bunch of the crops that we have planted, especially in the Midwest. And they also have a lot of different avian diseases that they've spread. Every bird has some level of salmonella, but there's a couple of others that unfortunately can be a problem as well. So that's probably the number one species besides the English house sparrow that we have admitted to the Wildlife Center a lot. Those were introduced in Brooklyn, also seems to be a New York theme there, in 1851 to try to control caterpillar populations. So there was a thought that maybe bringing in another species to help control another species would be a good idea, which people have tried in a lot of different areas and most of the time have found that it kind of fails. Like it, it, you get a win, but then you also get another consequence that comes of it, unfortunately. So it is now everywhere. It is 150 million house sparrows that now are in North America and they do very well, but they are very mean, fierce competitors with other birds. They will kick other birds out of nests. They will destroy eggs of other nest babies. Sometimes will be nest brood parasites, putting their eggs in other birds' nests. And if they don't end up raising their kids, they may just decide to destroy the entire nest of kids. So it's very interesting to see one house sparrow hoping that another bird of another species will take care of its kid. But then if it doesn't, it kind of sits back and watches and says, mm, you're not doing your job. Okay, goodbye. It's terrifying. Very interesting strategy for sure. So look that up if you ever have some time. But we also have the rock pigeon, eh, pretty neutral. They've been around for a while, 17th century, but they don't really do as much damage as you would expect, you know, compared to some of the other species. There's about 8.4 million rock pigeons in North America, and they're mostly in cities and they thrive with people. There's just a lot of different issues with parasites and pathogens that can spread in pigeons, and so that can be a concern. Otherwise, they're not as aggressive as the other two species that were just mentioned. There's another one that is the Eurasian collared dove. It looks just like a morning dove, but it actually has a collar on the neck, which is like a little black line. They're a little bit bigger than the morning doves that we see, but they were released into the wild after a pet shop was apparently burglarized in the Bahamas in 1974. So then they got to Florida in the 80s, and now they've been pretty much everywhere. And we've gotten a few at the Wildlife Center in Wisconsin, so yes, they have moved their way north. We also consider the ring neck pheasant to be not a native species here. They actually were attempted to be introduced to here on purpose in the 1730s to be a game bird for hunting. But eventually in the 1800s, they actually became their own sustainable populations. So they have spread all throughout the United States in general. So about 14 million of those birds now are here, but they originate from Asia. We also have a couple of others that are not as common. Cattle egrets are around, but we don't really see them here native to Africa. You can debate whether the house finch is technically a, an invasive or a non-native species, but they were originally found in the western part of the U.S. and Mexico, but then they got introduced into the east part of the U.S. in 1939, and so now they've been all over the U.S. and are over 30 million. But, you know, those are technically still sort of native, so I don't really count them in the list, but they are technically still in the list. 
So those are our top seven most common invasive bird species, or at least non-native species, and just a little bit about them so that you kind of know the history and why we have debates about working with them as rehabilitators. So thanks for listening here on WORT today. If you have any animal that you find, sick, injured, orphaned, invasive species or not, we can still try to do our best to help you out with any question you have. Give us a call at 608-287-3235. Thanks for listening. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John K. Wilson. Your reporter was Jess Miller. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Gavin Ascott, and Hewan Lim, and Andy Moore from WORT's 8 O'Clock Buzz. Super Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Pay Parks produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Thanks for your financial support during the WORT Fall Fundraising Drive. We came out a little short of our goal, so if you have some spare change, toss us a couple bucks at the WORT donation portal online at wortfm.org. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. To never miss another episode of this show, subscribe to the WORT Local News Podcast. It's available on all major podcast platforms. Thanks again for joining us this evening. Up next is Spanish Language News with Manoa Patio.